Welcome to the Alad Pod, Missouri's online town hall program bringing our government back to you. I'm your host, Alad Gross. I'm a civil rights and government transparency attorney, an educator, and a friend to all dogs who weigh at least 40 pounds, who believes that our government should be responsive to we the people. This show is about big ideas, including yours. So you're invited to participate and ask questions when these shows are live before they become podcasts at alodgross.live. This is a big one. It's a recording of the November 3rd, 2021 United States Senate Democratic Candidate Forum that took place at Jefferson College in Hillsborough, Missouri. Gina Ross, Lucas Kuntz, Scott Sifton, Tim Shepard, Jewel Kelly, and Spencer Toder were all there in person and live streamed, all together in person for the first time. Thank you for waiting. We are here at uh, wonderful Jefferson College in Hillsborough, Missouri, for the United States Senate Democratic Candidate uh, Forum, which is the first one with everybody in one place at one time. And we are streaming this live to everybody who would like to watch. If you are watching live right now uh, and your question may not get asked today, that's okay. Go ahead and put it in the comments. These folks will find it and they'll be able to answer either later down the road. And I will make this offer now too. For any of you all who would like to come and do a full one-hour session just with you, answering whatever questions folks want to ask, happy to do that too. So um, happy to have you all on. Very happy and thankful for all of you being here tonight, uh, for traveling. Many of you had to travel quite a distance to get here. Uh, so thank you for doing that. Thank you for running. Uh, it's so important for all of us in Missouri to have candidates who are willing to do it for the right reasons. Um, and so I personally want to say thank you, and I'm sure folks here are very appreciative of that too. So thank you all for, for being here today. And thank you all for coming here uh, in this socially distanced world. We really appreciate you all being here today um, and, and watching this and, and being a part of this. Uh, so like I said, uh, we obviously won't be able to ask everybody's questions in this room today, uh, but there'll be time. You'll be able to meet with folks and, and learn more about them. Uh, and obviously everybody's got a website and a program too, so you'll be able to catch up with them and learn more. Today's format will be every candidate will have an opportunity for to provide an opening statement. Uh, they'll also have a closing statement when we get to the end of this whole thing. Uh, and then there will be questions in the middle where every candidate will be able to answer each of the questions. They range in topics from foreign policy to domestic issues as well. So we'll get to all of those that we can today, um, and then we will wrap it up at the very end. So uh, there will be an intermission in the middle. Uh, it will be for a few minutes, and then uh, we'll kick up the rest of the questions and get it done. So uh, let me, uh, the, uh, by the way, the order was not chosen by me or anybody else. It was chosen randomly by a flip of a coin or something, whatever Bob Butler did. Uh, we should say thank you, first of all, to Bob. Uh, Bob Butler has done so much to put this thing together. Uh, Dennis McDonald, too, who is, who is put, and his whole family is here, too, today, helping put this whole thing together. 
getting all the tables set up and all these lovely signs. And speaking of these lovely signs, these are the folks who are presenting and sponsoring the event today. That is the Jefferson County Democratic Central Committee, the Women Dems, which is a wonderful organization here in Missouri as well, and the St. Genevieve Democratic Club too, St. Genevieve County. All right, so I'm gonna stop talking. You guys can come in here. Uh, the order of speakers, we will have uh, Dr. Gina Ross. You will be the first one up to provide an opening statement. So when you are ready. Good evening, everyone. I'm so excited. I'm a COVID survivor. I'm a long hauler. And I had voice surgery last week because I had lost my voice. And the doctor just gave me clearance on Monday to begin to speak and talk again. So my voice is normal. So I'm really excited. <laughs> So I'm Dr. Gina Ross, and I was the primary winner for Missouri's 6th Congressional District in 2020 while sick with COVID-19, hospitalized twice. Um, I didn't do too well with my fundraising then, but I won with only 88 cents in my Congress checking account. <laughs> I'm a lover of people. I love people. Um, I have an earned PhD in public policy administration, a master's in public administration, a bachelor's in business administration, and an associate's degree in urban ministries. I'm an associate professor at Kansas City, Kansas Community College. I teach business. My favorite courses to teach are customer service and human relations and business. Oh, I see that timer. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, I'm happy to be here. Paving the way for change is why I'm running. Um, democracy, people first, is everything to me. Uh, I will really work with bipartisanship just so we can get rid of all these biases and get what's best for we the people. Thank you all for this opportunity, and thank you for just thank you for being here. I'm glad to see you all. <laughs> and that's great. Thanks, and thank you for being here. Uh, Lucas Kuntz is our next one. Hi, I'm Lucas Kuntz, and I'm running for this seat because I don't think that in this country, someone who puts their head down and work hard, works hard has, should have to live paycheck to paycheck or one disaster from bankruptcy. And you know, I know what that's like because as a kid growing up in a working class neighborhood in Jefferson City, that's how we grew up. You know, I remember my mom going to the grocery store and writing a check and begging the manager not to cash it until the end of the month so that we could make it. And I remember when my little sister was born and she had to have a heart surgery, got flown up here to St. Louis. And when the bills piled up from that, our family went bankrupt. And I, you know, I talk about the hard times, but I also know, you know, I saw during those years the way that we made it. And the way that we made it was because the people in our neighborhood and in our community took care of us. They passed the plate down at my mom's prayer group to make sure we could buy what we needed. I remember like more lasagna and casserole running through our front door than, than we could ever eat, right? That's Missouri. And in my mind, that is who should have power in our country. People who love each other, know how to take care of each other, and will actually do that. And instead what I see is I see massive corporations and the most powerful people in our country buying off our politicians to make decisions that work for them and strip our communities for parts. I've seen that in the, in the place I grew up in Jeff City. And so, you know, I spent my entire life trying to pay people back for what they did for me. 
I joined the Marine Corps. I went to Iraq once. I went to Afghanistan twice. I led U.S. arms control negotiations overseas. And still, when I come home, I see things worse and worse. So for me, I'm running for this seat because we need to fundamentally change who has power in our country. And the only way to do that is breaking the grip on corporate power over our politics and our politicians. Scott Sifton. Thank you very much, and thank you all for the opportunity to be here tonight. My name is Scott Sifton, Democratic candidate for United States Senate. Uh, I might have uh, had one of the shorter trips to get here tonight. I represented the Senate District 1 North of Jefferson County, just across the Merrimack River in South St. Louis County, a seat that we actually flipped in 2012 by defeating a Republican incumbent. And I'm very proud that we were able to move uh, South St. Louis County into the blue column. Uh, I, I'm running uh, because of what happened to my neighbors and, and so many families like theirs. They were a three-income family. Uh, the father had two jobs. Uh, he, he, he was a, a chef in one of the hotels at night, and uh, I, for, I forget what his day job was, but uh, the mother was a teacher. And uh, it was very early in what became the subprime foreclosure crisis, but from the time she lost her teaching job, to the time they were out of that house was under six months. And I remember the day they moved out. Uh, their, their two boys were playing in their backyard on their swing set for the last day that it was gonna be their swing set. And I, I wondered what the future was gonna hold for them, how this was gonna impact them as they, as they went through life. And I identified with it because the same thing happened to my family. Uh, when I was 15 and growing up in the Kansas City Northland, my father lost his job. My parents went bankrupt. They lost the home that I grew up in. They lost the family minivan. Um, and uh, at age 15, I became a waiter and a dishwasher and a buffet attendant and a cashier. Uh, we, uh, we worked very hard to get through that. Um, and, and I've been tremendously fortunate since. And I have worked very hard to try to give back. Served nine years on the school board in Afton. Uh, served a term in the Missouri House and eight years in the Missouri Senate. And have been fighting Republicans like Eric Greitens every step of the way. Uh, and I'm proud of a lot of what we've accomplished. Uh, being outnumbered more than two to one in the Senate, it's been tough, but we've stopped some bad things, we've gotten some good things done, and I look forward to making a difference in the United States Senate. Thank you. Timothy Shepard. Thank you, Ella. And thank you, Jefferson County and surrounding communities, so much for this incredible opportunity and to my fellow candidates, it's a pleasure to be celebrating uh, our democracy today as we together work to make it a more vibrant place and, and to communicate to, to all of you uh, our ambition to make our country a better place. Uh, my name is Tim Shepard. I'm a husband and a father, I'm a civil rights activist, and I'm a very proud Missourian. The reason I'm running to represent Missouri in the United States Senate is because America finds itself right now in a horrible crisis, but we don't have to be there. In Missouri, we believe in being our brothers and sisters keepers, and I know that it doesn't matter what religious background we come from, our creed, our color, our age, or our abledness, we just love each other, and that's what makes me so proud to be a Missourian. Just this week, I was at a, a gas station, and I saw a gentleman who um, paid the difference for somebody who couldn't afford a meal for their child. And that's the kind of people that we are in Missouri. We're people with compassion 
and we're a people with integrity, and we're sick and tired of the politics of fear, division, and gridlock, and not getting things done. So we have to ask, why is it that we can't seem to elect leaders who agree with all of us and who can unite to pass policies that are universally popular? We have to unite and we have to demand campaign finance reform to stop billionaires from being able to bribe politicians and leaders using super PACs because it's against the democratic order and it's stopping uh, the, the ability of democratic coalitions to be able to compete and it's systemically wrong. Only then can we ensure that uh, our politics prioritize solutions rather than rewarding fear, division, and gridlock. Thank you. Jewel Kelly. Before I get started, I want to thank my wife, Karen Kelly. She is the wisest, hardest working, most stunning person that I know. Thank you, Karen. I also want to thank her mom. She's the sweetest person that I know as well, and I know where Karen gets it from. My name is Jewel Kelly, and we live right here in Jefferson County. I am the eldest of 18 siblings by the same mother and father. We grew up poor in a tiny, single-wide trailer. But my parents taught us the value of education, and I was the first to graduate college and earn two graduate degrees. In addition, 17 out of 18 of my siblings also attended college. 20 years ago, following the attacks on September the 11th, I raised my right hand to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I ended up serving 10 years and deploying twice in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. And 20, after my military service, I took a job with GE Healthcare, where we make the CT, MR, X-ray machines, and also the ventilators, which were so critical during this pandemic. In 2016, Karen and I started a real estate business to help fellow Americans live the American dream. Tragically, in 2018, my 17-year-old bonus daughter died by suicide. And we went through those four stages of grief, shock, anger, depression, and finally acceptance. America also went through the four stages of grief to the extreme. We saw the shock of George Floyd being murdered. We experienced the depression of the pandemic. We experienced the anger of the insurrection on January 6th. And finally, acceptance. Nothing is going to change unless we change. Our campaign, the core of our campaign, is principle over party. Thank you. And finally, Spencer Tony. Thank you, and thank you to the hosts. Thank you to Elad. I, I think we're privileged to have you on our team as we fight across the state and, and, and try to make the, the, the state a better place. And it's so nice to have you leading some of those charges. So thank you for that. My name's Spencer Toder. I'm a fourth generation Missourian. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a father, I'm an, I'm, and I'm a husband. And what I can tell you about my experience running so far is that when I saw my son being born and I saw the world that we were bringing him into, I was scared. I saw division, I saw hate, I saw rhetoric, but I also saw solutions because I know people from all sorts of different backgrounds. I work with people in a, in a home 
uh, rehab business where we hang drywall and we paint walls together and we get along regardless of political affiliation because we don't use political rhetoric. I run a medical device startup where we've developed a device that fills a hole in an infant's heart when they're born with a congenital heart disease. And, and I've worked with scientists and doctors who think similarly, but, but who use different language. But what is uniform across the board is that our values tend to be the same. How we get to the answers of what we need to accomplish as a society, better paying jobs, uh, healthcare that, that helps everyone and doesn't leave you in debt, Medicare for all ideally, uh, better quality education for our children, taking care of our climate. These are things that people agree on. Uh, what they don't agree on is how we talk and, and the way that, that the system is built to put us at odds with one another. And it's absolutely essential that we build trust. And that's the foundation of my campaign. My campaign is about going into communities, getting to know folks, and finding out what their real problems are and then helping them address those problems. This isn't going to be a state that we're going to be able to flip by advertising at people in social media. We have to get to know people. We have to be there. We have to ask them what they need, and then we have to hear them and make a difference. And that, that's the principle of my campaign. So a lot of people, and I'm sorry, I can't see the, the time on that. Um, a, a lot of people will tell you that, that they didn't really know what was going on during, during COVID lockdowns and how to spend their time. And I can tell you that how I spent my time was planning for this was to try to find a way to succeed at making this world a less divided place that represents all of us. So thank you, and I look forward to answering the further questions. Well, speaking of questions, I've got a few. Uh, and just so you all know, as everybody's listening, uh, they are limited in how much time they can answer. So some of these are complicated, but understand that uh, we're, we're limiting answers to about two minutes and 30 seconds depending on how uh, bad their eyesight is for the time cards. <laughs> so the first person to answer this question uh, will be Lucas, but let me read it first so you know what you're answering. This one's on foreign policy, specifically on China and Taiwan. Divisions between democratic states and China are at an all-time high. This is especially true with tensions mounting between China and Taiwan. Taiwan was established by the Republic of China after losing the Chinese Civil War to the People's Republic of China in 1949. In 1979, the United States officially recognized the People's Republic of China in Beijing as a legitimate government in an effort to create trade relations and bolster opposition to the Soviet Union. The United States passed the Taiwan Relations Act the same year to provide arms to Taiwan but does not guarantee the United States will defend the now thriving democracy in an attack. That decision must be jointly determined by the President and Congress. How should the United States position itself in an increasingly tense situation between, between China and Taiwan, which both are important trade partners? How should Congress act should China attempt to militarily reunify Taiwan? Lucas, uh, the question is for you. The number one thing that we have to do when it comes to China and Taiwan is start building things here in America again. And so like, what you see in Taiwan right now is Taiwan has a monopoly on semiconductors. These are the little computer chips that go in absolutely everything we use. They go in telephones, they go in cars, they go in medical devices. 
They go in missiles. They go in every piece of military equipment that we use. And right now, our entire economy would absolutely shut down if China did something in Taiwan. And so what we're looking at, you know, as a, as a Marine who has led troops in combat, you know, I led Marines in Iraq on convoy missions, escort missions, and everything else. And the number one thing, the, the number one position you want a commander to absolutely never be in is a situation where they have no choice and they have to defend at all costs. And that is the situation we're in with Taiwan, because right now, literally, our entire co economy will collapse if we lose Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. And so what Congress needs to do is they need to invest right here in America in producing semiconductors here, preferably right here in Missouri, where we can, we can learn how to do that and do it. And the thing is that we have the leverage to make that happen because we work with Taiwan on many defense things. We work on Taiwanese defense. We ship arms to Taiwan. We let them buy arms. We have leverage in this situation, and we need to make sure that they start reshoring semiconductor manufacturing back here to America, that they teach us how to do it again because, sadly, we have lost the ability to do it. Intel, our only remaining company that makes chips here, has just decided they can't do it anymore because they're not good at it. That is America in decline, and I'm telling you right now, the cost of building semiconductor manufacturing right here in America is way cheaper than the $6.4 trillion I saw us spend in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's infinitely cheaper than the cost of going to war with China over Taiwan. We need to make that investment right here in our country, make the world a safer place, and give ourselves better jobs. Jewel Kelly. The current U.S. policy is dual deterrence. And basically what that means is the U.S. has warned China not to attack Taiwan unprovoked. And the U.S. would not support the Taiwanese independence. On the other hand, the U.S. has promised Taiwan that the U.S. will come to Taiwan's defense as long as it did not declare independence. Regarding the question of whether or not we defend democracy, the defense of democracy is non-negotiable. As the president of Taiwan said herself, Democracy has become a non-negotiable part of who we are. Now, it is true that we cannot impose democracy on any country, but we owe it to defend democracy at any cost. The principles of justice, safety, and equality require us to defend democracy. And so the question is not whether we should defend democracy, but how we should defend democracy. And some of the things that we can do is, of course, strengthen the diplomatic initiatives of the four countries that are committed to doing just that, Australia, India, Japan, and the US. In addition, we can work with our coalition partners, especially the EU, to ban the purchase of debt instruments from blacklisted companies. We can stop American funds from benchmarking investments to stock indexes which support Chinese companies which are complicit in genocide and crimes against humanity. And last but not least, we can interact with China with the applicable environmental, social, and governance goals. Thank you. Scott Sifton. You know, it really did not help things that Donald Trump on his way out the door was actually threatening to invade China. 
and, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was put in the almost unimaginable position of having to call the, the government there and assure him, uh, assure his counterparts that the U.S. was not going to invade unless we were going to let them know first. Uh, that is how uh, crazy things were in, in Trump's last days, and, and not something that has helped uh, set the stage for the current situation. Uh, as many of you probably saw earlier this week, President Biden made it very clear that if China is, uh, were to attack Taiwan, that we would come to its military defense. That, that question has been answered within the last seven days. Uh, I uh, recognize and support the One China policy. Uh, I, I do believe that, uh, that Taiwan must maintain sovereignty as part of One China. Uh, and that the strategic ambiguity with which the U.S. has backed that up over the decades has been effective. Uh, all of that being said, China has some real strategic challenges ahead of it. Uh, uh, the government just warned people to stock up on vegetables uh, for the coming winter. There is a food shortage there in the short term. And because of the impact of the one-child policy and the very large generation that is retiring there relative to the generation following, they are going to have, I believe, some tremendous economic challenges in the years ahead. Um, I, I believe we need to remain strategically engaged. I, I believe uh, trade is important. Uh, if you look back to the history of World War II, when, when protectionism led to, uh, led to a, a, a curtailment of global trade, uh, you saw that, that, company, that countries no longer had a disincentive uh, to militarize. And we all saw what happened. We don't need to go down that road again. And it's not an easy road. Uh, and the last uh, half century, uh, Paul, uh, the last half century of engagement with China has been difficult and not always pretty. Uh, and it's not an easy or simple situation, but it's the world that we live in. And uh, I believe that President Biden has our country on the right course with China. Gina Ross. The President and Congress, they must work together. As we find ourselves starting to lag behind China in real GDP, uh, 23 trillion and the U.S. 19 trillion, um, this would only get worse if we do not tackle the military influence and economic influence China has in that region and the world. As retreating from globalization, it's damaging everyone's economies and democracies. Taiwan would be the symbol for small countries to identify with as China begins to bully its way to world dominance, not in a toe-to-toe -to -toe with Western democratic powers, but in more soft power until it feels it can and will be superior to USA military power, political willingness to stand up for what is right. We should be firm in our defense for Taiwan and stand behind them and make sure that China knows that. Thank you. Tim Shepard. I think it's important that we recognize China as a really important trading ally, and we can welcome them to the world stage as a peer great power. Uh, but at the same time, we need, as Congress and the President, to send a message to China that we're not going to tolerate aggression of any kind, uh, militarily speaking, toward our allies, especially important allies like Taiwan. Uh, we need to send a clear message to China that there's a red line they can't cross, and I think it's perfectly fine uh, and, and maybe necessary to, uh, to recognize the sovereignty 
uh, of Taiwan, uh, perhaps with the strategic uh, uh, indifference, but uh, it's really important that, that we're able to recognize allies like Taiwan, especially as China's on the rise, becoming a great power and starting to flex their muscles and become more aggressive. Uh, it's become very clear that we need an organization in the Pacific similar to NATO in the North Atlantic. And we need to lean into deals like the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership and strengthen it uh, with a, uh, an agreement that means whenever our allies get attacked, it's the same as us being attacked. This is how we can create guardrails for, for dual powers to be able to exist and to be able to ensure security uh, so that we can ensure mutual prosperity for everyone, including China, uh, as, as we diversify uh, the world into the 21st century. Uh, and so that is really the, the gist of it. Uh, and in terms of the treaty organization, uh, we need to ensure that we're protecting nations like Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and our Southeast Asian allies, uh, as well as Australia. Uh, and that's it. Spencer Toter. So it's, it's hard not to recognize the consolidation of power around the world. It's hard not to recognize the allies that we have around the world and how important they are to us. There's a reason these are our allies. They're not just our trading partners. They share our values. They, they believe in diplomacy and democracy. And those are things that we need to hold true to. It, it, it's, it's scary to me when we think about a time where we make a promise to another country and we don't hold true to that promise. And it's important that our allies know that they can count on us at all times. I, I think that we're at a point in society where many of these wars should not be fought in combat. We, we, are, we are past that. We, technology, economic sanctions, diplomacy, these are all really powerful tools for, for most of the things that we uh, can, can deal with on a daily basis. And it's worrisome that we always think that we need to go to war whenever there's a problem. These, these long-time wars, as, as people who I appreciate their service uh, sitting up here can tell you, they take a toll on families, they take a toll on our society, they take a toll on us economically. Importantly, though, is recognizing that China isn't just having an impact in Taiwan. They had an impact in Hong Kong, and they have an impact in America. In Missouri, there are farms that every animal on that farm is owned by a, a, a company that's owned by China. There are land, uh, pieces of land that are owned by Chinese foreign uh, corporations. That is a national security threat, in my opinion. That is a problem. And, and as we watch the rise of CAFOs, and if we watch the deregulation of the agricultural industry and, and as family farms disappear, a lot of that is because of financial pressures from the Chinese government and from folks around the world who don't have Missourians' best interest at heart. Spending my entire life here, I can tell you, I've watched my family farm friends lose their family farms, not only because th there were opportunities to sell, but because the margins were, were squeezed by China having monopolies and, and by foreign international corporations having, having an ability to control our livestock supply. We can't live in a world in which we don't have independence of our food sources, of our agricultural production, and where we depend on them technologically and, and worldwide without having checks and balances. So I'm all for diplomacy, and I'm all for working with China and Taiwan to make sure that there are diplomatic solutions to these problems. On to question number two. Domestic policy, specifically on infrastructure. 
Congressional Democrats failed to act on its self-imposed October 31st deadline to pass both the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, including funding for roads, bridges, broadband expansion, and the larger $3.5 trillion Build Back Better Act, which focuses on human spending, including climate change, Medicare expansion, and free two-year college. Many analysts see the failure of Democrats to unify and pass the key legislative initiative of President Biden as a death knell for Democrats in the midterms. Well, this is really pleasant. Uh, how, how should congressional Democrats proceed from here? What, if anything, would you be willing to compromise on to pass this major piece of legislation? Uh, this will first go to Spencer Toter. Thank you. So we're going to pass these bills. These bills are going to be passed. Right now, we're negotiating against ourselves to decide what we're going to take out and what we're going to sacrifice. And I think it's important that when we think about infrastructure, we think about the things that let our lives operate on a regular basis in a functional way. And that does mean education. That does mean health care. That does mean early childhood care. And I, I see a baby bouncing in the background. But, <laughs> but when I sit down with my friends and we discuss whether or not people want to have children or people can afford to have children, but we know that with a minimum wage job, you can't afford both your, your rent and also childcare. And if you don't have a parent who is in the area who can support you, we have real issues. And so we need to start thinking about what makes quality of life better. And we need to start recognizing that during globalization, people are going to choose the places they want to live. You can work, you can work from almost anywhere for, for almost any technological job currently. And most manufacturing facilities are mostly machines and, and hardly humans anymore. And so if we're going to make Missouri a place that people want to live, if, we want, if we're going to make America a place that people are going to want to live, we really need to focus on educating our young people and giving them the tools so that when they get older, they, they can have a job that pays them well enough to live. And so they don't have to depend on taxpayer welfare, as, as some people want to call it, or on other sources of, of income that, that aren't palatable. And I think technology comes into this in a big, in a big way because we've allowed monopolistic companies to, to squeeze union rights, to squeeze labor rights, and to make it so much harder for people to live successful lives. Regularly, people say to me, Spencer, you know, the problem isn't education, it's that parents aren't reading to their kids enough at night. And I say, how do you read to your kids at night when you're working two jobs, when you're going to the grocery store, when you're shopping, when you're taking a bath, when you're trying to live your own life and dealing with these problems that we all have? America's in a state of trauma right now. Our, our world is in a state of trauma. People are getting hit by dodgeballs left and right, and people are deciding if they're going to sit in the fetal position and get hit by them, if they're going to unite around democracy and around a future in which we make change, or where they want to stand in this process. It is absolutely essential that we get together now and we take action and recognize that infrastructure isn't just roads and broadband, which it is, but it's all of the services that we need in order to have a functional society in which people can live and thrive and enjoy their lives, which should be our American dream. Thank you. Lucas Kuntz. We need to stop taking corporate PAC money. We need to break the link between massive corporations and politics. We need to abolish corporate PACs, and we need to end Citizens United. That is how we get things like this done, all right? And I have, I mean, I have a very personal story that has to do with military, all right? There's, I mean, remember when the infrastructure bill was first being talked about? The way that it was gonna be paid for was by increasing the corporate tax rate, which used to be at 35%, from 21 to 28%. All these companies, you know, pitched a big, pitched a big hissy fit, went, went nuts, lost their minds to everything else. 
And one company in particular, to, in particular stood out for me. It's a company called Raytheon. It's one of the biggest military contractors in the entire world. And what they did was they rolled through the halls of Congress, they rolled up to the mainstream media, they went up to all these people and they said, you know what? If you increase the corporate tax rate by 7%, we are gonna cut $1 billion from our research and development budget that goes towards the troops. They, hold, they held people like me hostage and said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take away their money, we're not gonna invest in research and development for troops anymore, and it's gonna be bad for national security. If you invest in American infrastructure, it is gonna be bad for national security, is what they said. And then you know what happened? Their leadership went to a shareholders meeting, and they told their shareholders that they were about to get the biggest share buyback and dividend bonanza that they'd ever seen, $5 billion over the next several years. So what they really did was they held US service members hostage and they said, you can't fund this infrastructure because it'll hurt the troops. And then they took that money, $5 billion, they gave it to their shareholders who, by the way, 40% of shareholders in American companies are foreigners. And so what they decided, and what the members of Congress that we have decided, is that their corporate funders and their shareholders are more important than the people of this country and investing in our own infrastructure. That's wrong, and the only way that we are ever going to change it is by breaking the link between massive corporate power and our politicians. That's why I'm taking no corporate PAC money, and I want to end Citizens United and break corporate PACs. Jewel Kelly. I believe the question was, <clears throat> we had two bills, the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, and they failed. What would we compromise? Um, in the business world, I've worked 10 years for GE, and I'm a realtor with my wife. We have a phrase that we say, start small to go fast. And so we know that we can't get everything at once. We know that in reality, it's like 48 Democrats you have two that are basically voting as if they're Republican, and then you have all the Republicans lined up against us. So we're in a very tough situation. It's like trying to buy a house, a $500,000 house, for $350,000. You're going to have to compromise. And so we know that it's not safe and it's not fair that if you're born to a rich person, you get top quality education, but if you're born to a poor person, you don't. We can't compromise on universal free, uh, universal uh, school for our kids. But we can look at ways where we can reduce the amount, right? So the goal should be universal. But if we can't get there immediately, start small. Um, same thing with Medicare coverage. We want to be able to give dental, healthcare, um, vision, all of those things. If we can't do it now, then pass what we can. Pass the infrastructure bill first, get that done, and then now let's work on the Build Back Better bill. If we can't get $2 million, then let's negotiate and see if we can get one point, uh, oh, I'm sorry, $1.5 trillion, then let's see if we can get, you know, $1 trillion. We have to start small to go fast. We can't get everything at once. And so I think in terms of compromise, we know that we're split. Take what we can get. Sign the bill immediately, the infrastructure bill. And then let's work on the Build Back Better bill. Thank you.
Scott Sifton. This is very simple, but in a 50-50 Senate, we need to elect more Democrats. <laughs> the reality is, with it being split down the middle, we are absolutely at the mercy of the folks who hold votes 49 and 50. That's the reality of where we find ourselves. And there's going to be a lot of 2020 hindsight Monday morning or Wednesday morning quarterbacking on what happened in Virginia last night. And there will be speculation as to what, what, whether things would have been different had Congress managed to act on these bills before yesterday's election. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that failing to act sure didn't help. Might not have been the end of what happened last night, but it sure didn't help. Uh, and I would just challenge folks. I think one of our, uh, our challenges as, de as Democrats, and I'm going to challenge the Democrats in Congress and the Senate on this right now. Look, um, I, I like to ask folks, can, can you name one thing that this Congress has done since the rescue plan? And, and it's a serious and pointed question. This Congress needs to act. We need to get our act together. And that means Democrats in Washington getting the job done. I hope that there will be more of us after the 2022 election, but the folks that are there now need to do their job and move on these bills. Um, I, am, uh, I am not excited about some of what has fallen out uh, of Build Back Better. Uh, I think uh, American families really need and deserve paid leave. We're one of only six countries on the planet without some kind of paid leave. Uh, that's out, that's unfortunate. Um, a, a lot of the higher ed provisions are out. That's also unfortunate. I agree with Bernie Sanders. We need two-year community college education. I say that as, I'm, as we're here at Jefferson College tonight, so uh, not good for Jefferson College that, 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 that the higher ed provisions are out of Build Back Better. Um, dental coverage is out. I, I would have liked to see us been able to do all those things, but we have 48 votes for those things in the Senate, not 50. Um, I'm happy that the child uh, tax credit is still in, uh, that the premium tax credit is still in, uh, that pre-K is still in. Some, some, one of the most critical things we can do uh, to buttress education, which was one of our issues yesterday in Virginia, is to have universal pre-K in our country. Uh, and I'm also happy that hearing aids are in. And I say that, you know, and I'm, I, I, I'm not sure... Um, I may be the oldest of the six of us, I'm not sure, but uh, I, don't, uh, I don't need hearing aids yet, but, but I did go to a lot of pretty loud concerts in college. So if I ever ask you to introduce yourself twice, it's not because I'm forgetful, it's because the urge was really, really loud back in the day. <laughs> Thank you. Gina Ross. I'll be 51 next Saturday. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> when I was a little girl, we used to sing this song. This land is your land. This land is my land from California. You know, this land was made for you and me. So in saying that, we don't back down. You keep pressing and fighting until we get the results that we want to see. We don't have to sit back and take what they give us. We gotta press back. We're taxpayers, this is our world. Healthcare and the things we need, sustainability, it's our human right. So for people to fight back and forth and hold back on us, they're just pure wrong. So what we need to do is just be a whistleblower and call them out every time, expose them. I don't care if it's your buddy or what. If it's gonna take away from your family, your family or my family, I'm gonna say something about it. I'm not in a clique, I'm not, bias, I'm not in nobody's pocket. So I will speak up because it's my right 
and it would be my right and my pleasure to represent you and stick up and stand up for you so you can thrive instead of just surviving and just living from paycheck to paycheck. So that's all. Tim Shepard. Well, the first thing I would do is ask Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin uh, what it is that they would accept in a bill so that we can get the thing passed and prove to the electorate that when we have power as Democrats, we're very capable of governing and giving Americans legislation that they deserve. Uh, that is the easy part. The hard part is asking the question of why Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are so willing to obstruct and to not provide any kind of negotiation leverage so that we can get it done. In our country, we have this interesting trick where billionaires are able to purchase elections. They use very fancy uh, campaign finance structures. There's 501c4s in particular, uh, super PACs, that are allowed to take unlimited contributions from any one individual. And donors can give hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars, and they do. So we have to uh, fix the structural issue that allows a billionaire or a super PAC to go up to a candidate and say, hey, we need you to obstruct this legislation because we don't like it. Uh, and you know, illegal coordination of a campaign where a super PAC's gonna take care of some advertising expenses so that a candidate campaign committee doesn't have to foot the bill. Candidate campaign committees are limited to $5,800 donations. Super PACs can spend as much as they want. And so the, the fundamental underlying problem that has created gridlock in this country is that any billionaire can go spend a billion dollars tomorrow and they can go to Kirsten Cinema and they can say, we're gonna take care of this part of the election for you, please obstruct the bill. And she says, yes. So in order to fix it, we have to pass the For the People Act immediately, and we need to actually strengthen the For the People Act and force super PACs, that's 501c4s in particular, they have to abide by the same rules that candidate committees have to abide by. They need to have campaign contribution limits so that they have to build a democratic coalition of people. If we solve that problem, that one single problem, we'll take away the incentive for politics of fear and division and hate, and we'll get past this gridlock. Thank you. Question number three. This is also on domestic policy, specifically big tech. Congressional whistleblower testimonies in October shed light on Facebook's operating procedures and how it acts in its own self-interest over harms to our democracy and to consumers. At a time where social divisions in our country are at an all-time high, the senators in the whistleblower hearing all seem to agree that social media is damaging our country. Sorry for everybody watching on social media right now. <laughs> what should Congress do, if anything, to rein in big tech's influence over our daily lives and our civil discourse. And our first uh, respondent will be Timothy Shepard. The number one thing that, that is key here is that these firms aren't tech firms. They're technology-enabled firms. And so the law that allows them to uh, wring their hands of responsibility for anything bad that happens 
uh, is, is not actually applicable to them. They derive their profit and they generate their business from advertising and distribution of media to billions of people, not from a code base that allows them to do that. And so Congress needs to act to classify them as media companies and to subject them to the same kinds of rules and regulations uh, that media companies have to abide by. Uh, they can't afford to solve the problem. One of the objections that the, that the companies give is that, oh, it's too expensive. They make more than a million dollars in revenue per employee, and they're some of the most profitable companies on the planet. They could double their headcount tomorrow to get some moderators to make sure that fact-checking can be robust and, and make sure that we uh, get some regulations in place as well to disincentivize them from, from luring kids into, into traps that, that lead them to actions like suicide. The last thing that we need to do is, is take into account the objection of, of the concept of free speech. If I write an opinion column and I submit it to the Kansas City Star or the New York Times, they are not obliged to publish it. They're not required to amplify my voice. It's incumbent on me to figure out a way to matter so that they'll do that. In the same notion, on the social media platforms, there's no obligation for them to amplify lies, misinformation, and hate. It's an opinion column, and you're more than entitled to that, but we don't need to have a system that amplifies that to billions of people. And we need to make sure that we create a framework, a regulatory framework, uh, that allows us to regulate them as the type of companies that they are, which is media companies and not tech. <laughs> Spencer Toder. Thank you. Uh, a lot of my background is actually working with innovative startups in St. Louis and throughout the Midwest. It's, it's advising and working with companies that are on the cutting edge of technology. And so this is something that I spend a lot of time studying and thinking about. And I think it's important to recognize that there's two different things at play. One is social media and its ability to influence public perception and, and to divide us as a society. And that happens because engagement is the new news. We don't have the same kind of local journalism that we once had. We don't have Walter Cronkite talking to us on TV. We have what gets put in front of us every day. And what you'll find, if you actually dig deep, is there's a lot of things that you agree with that you're not seeing regularly if you go into the profiles of the people you follow on social media. You're seeing the things that are most likely to engage you, the things that are most likely to trigger you to, to want to engage, to, to like it or repost or, or retweet or, 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 uh, or comment. And those are things that are more likely to make you angry or happy. And what we're doing right now as a society is we're putting ourselves into two buckets and it's people who are angry at one another. And, and that is a huge problem. I have no interest in social media companies becoming the arbiter of deciding whose voice should be disseminated and what's right and what's wrong. I think it's really scary for free speech if we do something like that, but we do need regulation that makes sure that hate speech and disinformation and misinformation aren't amplified at the rate that they're currently being amplified. And that is very, very solvable. The problem is the system enjoys that. It, it's, it's very challenging for a political candidate, for instance, to raise money without saying something that triggers an audience to, to make it go viral, because that's a great way to raise money and, and a great way to get television attention. But it's, a hard, it's much harder to get attention for things that are just sane, responsible actions from a community member who's, who's trying to engage and make a change in, in an impact in, in their neighborhood. It's very different, it's, it's challenging. I would say though, think about Amazon. Because if Amazon went out of business for a week, if Amazon shut down for a week, 
I actually believe that your life would be more impacted than if the government was shut down for a week. And I don't mean this because you wouldn't get the delivery in one day. The internet is built on Amazon Web Services. The internet is built on data services where Amazon has become the marketplace, they've become the manufacturer and the distributor for all of these different, uh, different items, and they also make sure that our websites are up. They make sure that we can communicate with one another. And we need to break that up and to put it, it, to put it in a position where we are on an even playing field and can, and can create a competitive environment because that is what America is about. It's about com competition driving innovation. Lucas Kuntz. These, I think it's become pretty clear over the last several years that these big tech companies are essentially the big tobacco companies of the 21st century. Like, they know that they're doing harm, they intentionally do harm, and they continue to do it because they know that that's the most profitable thing for them to do. And so, uh, you know, they are essentially converting people, converting our democracy, into profit for themselves. And uh, you know, there's one slight difference between them and big tobacco of the 20th century, and that's that Congress passed a law, Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act a while back, that makes it so that you can't even sue them for what they're doing. You can't take them to court for what's on their platforms. And so we're in this situation where what brought down big tobacco, what showed everybody what they were doing was the fact you know, one of the great equalizers in our democracy, and that's the fact that the smallest person, the smallest organization, can take the giants of our country into court and get justice if they need it. And right now, we have a law, Section 230, that says, no, you can't sue these people for what's on their platforms. They have no liability whatsoever, and that is what they're converting into profit. They're converting risk to us into profit. They're converting the fact that we have protected them into profit. And so what we need to do is we need to first, we need to repeal Section 230 so that we can take them to court and we can learn what they're doing and we can get justice. And the second thing that, that irks me on this one is I hear these guys go around over and over again and they say, you need us as monopolies. You need us to be big because there's this big bad China over here. You know, we were talking about China earlier. Big bad China uh, has a billion people. And in order to compete with China's size, we need to grow bigger and bigger and have monopolies of our own. In the Marine Corps, we learned that you don't fight someone on their strength. Like China's strength is their size. They're four times bigger than us. We will never compete with them on numbers. We have to compete with them on, by having a, a competitive economy here that drives innovation so that people here can get access to the data these companies hold and actually make decisions and build new businesses so that we can compete uh, with innovation rather than size. And so what we also need to do, in addition to repealing Section 230, is break these guys up. If we break them up, they won't have the same power over our politics, they won't have the same power over our economy, and they won't get to do whatever they want with absolute impunity. Jewel Kelly. The question again was, what should Congress do regarding big tech influence? And I say we need to ask three questions. Is what they're doing legal? Is it safe? And is it fair? Now, we know that the Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act was written essentially to protect what Facebook is doing, as an example. So what they were doing, and Congress had 
all of the CEOs from big tech in, what they were doing technically is not illegal. But we also need to address whether it was safe and it was fair. And what they found, and the whistleblower provided this information, that Facebook knew the dangers it was causing relating to mental health and body image, especially among young adolescents, and did not respond appropriately. Facebook knew that they were not adequately addressing the national security threat caused by countries such as China, Iran, and Russia from using the, the platform to spy on one another and run disinformation campaigns. Facebook knew this. And they also knew that they were putting profits over clamping down on hate. So what can we do? We can certainly require a minimum age, especially in platforms like Instagram, and change it from 13 to 17. We can certainly make sure that we provide greater transparency of internal documents and research. And last but not least, the SEC does need to update their standard set of rules for social media companies. We need to have rules and legislation that address and promote the good of public interest. Thank you. Scott Sifton. This is an apocryphal story, but from a very reliable source. Um, somewhere in all of this, Facebook, as a test of its algorithms, created a fake profile of a generic Republican woman who was involved in her church. And that was all there was to the profile. And let their algorithms run and see sort of how that goes. And it took less than 48 hours for that thread to be overrun with QAnon. That should terrify all of us. I'm the father of a nine-year-old daughter, and I, I too worry about uh, what, how Instagram is going to play out um, for for the coming generation. Um, and and as a parent, that's something that I have responsibility for. Uh, but but so does so does Facebook. Uh, the FTC has fined them five billion dollars for privacy violations, and I believe there is a bipartisan. Uh, effort. Uh, there is bipartisan support in the U.S. Senate to move on the privacy considerations. Uh, we'll see how quickly that can happen, but I anticipate that the next United States Senator from Missouri is going to be involved in that, in that conversation. And the other thing is, is our, our antitrust laws. It's, it's not that we need to update our antitrust laws for the 21st century. The reality is that a lot of them were, were written before the 20th. They're not even up to the 20th century. Uh, so, so we need to modernize our antitrust laws. Uh, at the time when Teddy Roosevelt was on the scene, uh, what we're dealing with today was, uh, was not even imagined uh, at, that, at that time. Thomas Edison was still busy at that point. Um, so we have, we have a, a long way to go. Our, 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 bi our, our government regulatory framework uh, just has not kept pace with the, with the technology, and that's something that we need to change. But it fits the theme of corporate accountability. Uh, we, we need to hold social media companies accountable, and not just Facebook. It's, it's many, many others as well. Um, and that's something that I have done in my career in the Missouri Senate. There was a reference to the, the, the Chinese uh, uh, ag earlier. I was the one who filed the amendment to require all of those uh, foreign owners to divest Missouri farmland. In my law practice, I have worked to hold polluters accountable and companies that make products that cause cancer accountable. And that's something that I'll do in the United States Senate, making sure that we hold corporate America accountable for what it's doing. Thank you.
Gina Ross. Congress should ensure that we are the leader of the world. Smart cities built and maintained by Americans and education is the key. The more we're educated by things that are going on, the more we can do something about it. Thank you. All right, we have reached the midpoint, so we are gonna take a brief intermission uh, for just about 10 minutes or so. So for anybody who needs to uh, uh, take a break, please do uh, have that opportunity now. And for those who are watching online, we'll be back with you in about 10 minutes, so stay tuned. Thank you, Bob. Um, yes, please, look, donate. Look, there's lots of groups here that are, that are putting this on. There's a lot of folks who are doing a lot of great work to make this happen, to get this out to as many people as possible, to engage as many Missourians as possible. Um, so please, uh, support folks, support our candidates, our wonderful candidates here, our wonderful candidates in the audience, and uh, wherever you can find a candidate, find them and, uh, and help them out. This is uh, a, a great way to get involved and a great way to make change that's important to all of us. So. Um, well, we're on to question number four here. We're in the mid, midpoint. Question number four. Again, two minutes and 30 seconds. You guys are doing a great job following the time. And I can't even see the card from up here. You guys, great job. <laughs> now, here I am stalling on this one. All right, number four. It's about the general election. Recent election cycles in Missouri have been demoralizing for Democrats. Now, Senator Josh Hawley, who toppled incumbent Claire McCaskill, while crafting himself to Trumpian rhetoric. Uh, one, your counterparts in the Republican US Senate primary have adopted that same rhetoric and are competing for former President Trump's endorsement. What positions you, as the Democratic nominee, to overcome a Donald Trump-backed Republican nominee for United States Senate? First person to respond will be Gina Ross. I would strategize to see how we can come together for democracy and reconciliation. Also, have input from constituents because we are truly better together. Um, if we move forward by learning from our past mistakes, and also middle class is our key. If we look at other countries, um, they have an upper class and a lower class. Those are not democracies. And then we have moderates in both parties. We'll have to be the backbone to stand up. But like in any type of warfare, Picking one by one will be easy, creating a block or unified politicians that represent the average citizen and not dollar citizens. Um, we need to remind Republicans that education is the equalizer of all societies. Uh, and also, just ask people, how much is your life worth? Why limit to those who already have advantage? Will it stifle our innovative ways? It's like, why vote against something that doesn't represent you and your family. Just stay true, be true, and just make sure that we leave some kind of foundation for the next generation to come. Because this world, it is a mess, and it's really gonna take reconciliation, reformation, cooperation, and communication. We just have to work together, no matter what, in order to pave the way to change. Thank you. Tim Shepard. It's pretty simple. Uh, the Trumpian types, 
uh, and Republicans, what they've learned is that uh, bullies and, and demagogues who rely on fear can win. And, uh, and so we have to break that cycle. And, and the way that we do that is by proudly leaning into our values as Democrats. We're the party and we're the people who bring ideas that build this country up. We've got the solutions. We believe and we're aligned with the electorate. The majority of Americans want health care for everyone. The majority of Americans want to solve climate change. And the, Missouri, uh, the majority of Americans, as well as Missourians, uh, want to make the world a place that frankly pretty well matches up with the democratic platform. And so we have to uh, lean into that message. Now as a candidate, what I, what I bring, the, the special ingredient is that I fundamentally believe that love and hope are far more powerful and offensive weapons in political theater than fear and, and division. And so I'm leaning into that. Uh, now, the, the, the next thing that, that I really like to lean on is that I've proven uh, my integrity. Integrity is built in trial and tribulation. And, and so I'm really proud that as a part of my story, I get, to, I get to get out there and I tell Missourians that, you know, our system's bought, it's corrupt. And we need leaders who have proven that they can't be intimidated that they can't be bought, and that they won't be corrupted. And I, I proved that integrity in, in trial by fire when I was working at a large asset management firm in finance, and I wanted to speak out against the for-profit prison industry and the atrocities that they commit against their workers who work in the gig economy, as well as the people who are under their care. My employer told me to sit down, shut up, and be quiet. So uh, in the face of being stripped of uh, my, my title, being stripped down in bonus, having my livelihood threatened, and being threatened to be fired, I stood my ground. I'm very happy to say that a year into that process, that $630 billion asset management firm no longer trades for-profit prisons. And so as a candidate, I get to get out there and I get to tell a story to Missourians that I'm not going to be bought. I'm going to be on your side. And let's get out there and work for the people. Spencer Toder. So one of the most important things we can do is stop talking and start listening. As I go across the country, as I go across the state, as I talk to my friends who have left Missouri to more progressive cities, as we have these conversations, you recognize that we all have similar values. We want better education for our children. We want better health care. We want better paying jobs. Really, it comes down to freedom. It comes down to freedom of how we spend our time, freedom to know where our next meal is coming from, freedom to know that we're not working two to three jobs just to hopefully keep a roof over our head. And those are, those are problems that exist in cities and they exist in rural communities. It doesn't matter where you go. It's the same problems. And they're occurring because the government has not done the things that the government is supposed to do. It is not taking care of the, the disadvantaged and the most vulnerable. And what we're seeing is Donald Trump gave people a common enemy. He, he, he preyed on the fact that we were divided and angry and, and frustrated with the government. And the Republican base's strategy is let's dig deep into that. Let's talk about QAnon and let's talk about JFK Jr. still being alive. Let's talk, let's talk about things that aren't actually relevant. Let's talk about critical race theory, things that didn't even touch our ears a year or two ago, but they realized it triggered us. And when they realized it triggered us, they realized they could raise a lot of money off of it. 
and they could advertise to their constituents and they could keep their own bubble with, with Fox News telling people whatever they wanted to, to hear and they could continue to keep us out of that mix. So what I do, my strategy is to go into communities, to go into communi communities that people have not been going into and to make sure that these people are listened to, that, that I'm hearing what they need and that we're making a difference. We put on a supply drive and raised $50,000 with a, a, an army captain, a former army captain for Afghan refugees as we filled two, two storage containers for them. We're putting on a rally coming up to, to talk about exonerating men who are in prison who do not deserve to be in prison, who are innocent men. These are things that people are talking about. People are talking about childcare and its inaffordability. They're talking about not making enough to cover rent. They're talking about not having food on their tables or having uh, healthcare access. And they're talking about student debt absolutely crippling their ability to save for the future and to provide a life for their families. The first thing that we need to do as Democrats, if we're going to be successful, is listen, provide solutions to these problems, and then go out and take action to make people's lives better. And that is why I'm running for Senate. Lucas Kuntz. We're going to win because we are meeting people where they're at. And so I have a very clear message that we need to fundamentally change who has power in our country so that it's not these massive corporations buying off our politicians and stripping our communities for parts. And that message resonates no matter where you are. I mean, I come from Jefferson City, Missouri. My old house that's now abandoned, you know, the, the first house I lived in that's an empty lot, the corner store that's boarded up, that's what it looks like there, that's what it looks like in St. Louis, it looks like, that's what it looks like in Independence where I live now, and what we have had is we have had a set of people who make decisions based on their political funders rather than on the people that they are supposed to represent. And so it's, whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you're suburban, urban, or rural, that is what you believe. You believe that the system is broken, that it doesn't work, and that it's corrupted. And the reason that people believe that is because it is true. We're meeting them where we are at with our message, and we want to, like, again, I'm not taking any corporate PAC money, and yet with this message, we have been able to raise almost $2 million. We have the highest grassroots fundraising percentage of any U.S. Senate candidate in the entire country. That includes Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, John Fetterman, all of them. And we are doing that with a clear message that meets people where they're at, that resonates with them, and that meets every single Missourian on the change that we need, and that is to fundamentally change who has power in our country. Jewel Kelly. We need to pass the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill. But passing it is frankly not the most difficult part. As we saw with the Affordable Care Act 10 years ago, execution matters, communication matters. And so our job as senators, we're Democrats, we have a Democrat in, in, in the White House, our job is to help communicate that. Our job is to make sure that the execution is done as efficiently and as effective as possible. We need to communicate that universal and free preschool for all three and four-year-olds is possible if we pass the Build Back Better bill. We need to tell people that for every dollar that we spend in early education, we get a return on investment three to seven times greater. We need to emphasize that Improving Medicaid coverage and Medicare coverage is possible 
so that we can give more home care services for seniors and people with disabilities. It is possible to have a $2,000 cap. After that, you don't have to worry about going bankrupt because of medical issues. This is possible, and we need to communicate exactly what the bill is once we pass it. And we need to put pressure on Congress and our all branches of government to make sure that it runs efficiently. And, and last but not least, we certainly need to make sure that we focus on mental health. Mental health touches everything. It touches education. It touches jobs. It touches crime. It everything that we're talking about is related to mental health. If there's one thing that I can say here, if there's one thing that you guys can remember, is please take the mental health first aid class. And it's our job as politicians to make sure that it's available and affordable for anyone who wants to take it. Thank you. Scott Sifton. So the question is, what is, position, what is it that positions me to be the right nominee to take on Donald Trump? And, and the answer is very simple. I have proven repeatedly that I can beat tough, well-funded Republicans in competitive districts. I haven't just done it once. I've actually beaten five Republicans in different races. Now, two of them were nonpartisan races, but trust me, they were Republicans, <laughs> and we beat them. Uh, to give you a sense of how competitive South St. Louis County is, in, in the Obama wave year of 2008, as Missouri very nearly went blue, uh, the Senate seat that I would later run for actually flipped red that day by 36 ballots out of 90,000, far fewer people than we have sitting in this room tonight. Uh, in, in, in all of South St. Louis County and in the Webster uh, Crestwood area. Uh, we, four years later, we beat that Republican incumbent, and I became the first uh, Democrat to defeat a full-term Senate Republican incumbent in a quarter century. Uh, four years later, uh, the, the Republicans spent nearly a million dollars against me in that race. Four years later, in the Trump wave year, they spent more than a million dollars against me. So they dug up all the dirt they could, they, they, and they took the best shots they had at us, and we beat them even more the second time. Uh, and now South County is performing in the mid-50s, a seat that we lost uh, just uh, 13 short years ago. So we have flipped South County. Same thing has happened in the part of the state where I grew up, in the Kansas City Northland, the, the north suburbs. We picked up that seat in the state Senate in 2017. Uh, it's these persuadable suburban battlegrounds that, are, that, that have been gravitating toward Democrats in the Trump years, and I'm the candidate to keep pulling them into our column. We need to compete everywhere, and Democrats need to do better everywhere to win, but where the persuadable voters are are in suburban areas like the ones I've proven that I can win and the one that I, that I hail from. Um, and it's not just fighting in elections. It's, it's also fighting in, in government. And I've proven that I can take on Eric Reitens, and I did it effectively in Jefferson City. It got so bad. I was the only lawyer in the Missouri Senate when he was governor. I fought him on, on uh, employment discrimination. I fought him on cuts to school bus funding. I fought him on, on lowering the minimum wage for the city of St. Louis. It got so bad that uh, the Republican leadership uh, approached me to ask me for my help in picking judges so that they could make sure that if it ever went to impeachment that he would be gone. That's how bad it was. Uh, but we beat him, and, and we're going to do it again. Thank you. It's coming in and out. We got internet. We're recording. It's okay. If you are watching right now, Listen to Bob and give money to this thing so they can do it better. 
Um, I will, before I go to question number five, I've been watching a uh, very nice interaction uh, at the end of the table here because you guys are so close and I see that you guys are sharing a pen, so I'm gonna help you out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So let's make sure this is all going smoothly, as smoothly as it can. All right, question number five. Back to domestic policy. This one on climate change and the Paris Agreement. In February of this year, the United States officially rejoined the Paris Agreement, an international agreement to reduce carbon emissions, after former President Trump withdrew in 2019. The United States has pledged to cut its carbon emissions by about 25% by 2025. With ever-growing climate disasters in the United States, and the ease with which a new administration could withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement again. How should Congress act to cut our carbon emissions? The first person to respond will be Scott Sifton. Thank you. Thank you, Elad. And uh, Dr. Ross, thank you for sharing the pen. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so I, I have a lot of conversations with Missourians every day, and every single day somebody tells me that the most important issue to them is climate. And... Uh, one of the people that I've known the longest in this world would say the same. My brother and my sister-in-law have given their lives and their careers to the cause of environmentalism. Uh, my, my, my brother uh, consults with companies who are trying to get to net zero carbon emission, and before that he spent many years planting uh, windmills and, and solar panels in, in places um, as an engineering manager. Uh, the simple answer to the question, what do we need to do? The answer is we need to pass Build Back Better and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan, and we need to do it quickly. Uh, there's a lot in these bills, and I want to take just a minute to talk about some of the things that, that these two bills do for the, the environment. First of all, a uh, better part of $10 billion for uh, electric vehicle chargers, um, support for mass transit, uh, uh, tax credits for, for clean energy, uh, uh, an inclusive uh, green energy lending bank to help uh, uh, distressed communities get the investments that they need for uh, greenification. Uh, there's language and support in that bill that will reduce the cost of rooftop solar energy by 30% for residential users. And there are also incentives that will result in union-built electrical vehicles costing $12,500 less than they do today because of what's in these bills. There's support to clean up Superfund sites. Uh, uh, there's also... Uh, there are also incentives in the bills to create a domestic supply chain for wind energy and for solar energy, so we are not uh, completely dependent on the rest of the world for, for means of producing green energy. And, I, and that's really all that's just scratching the surface, but uh, passing Build Back Better and passing the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill is something that we can do immediately uh, to, to help fight climate change, and I'm confident that we can do it, but we absolutely have to. Thanks. Gina Ross. Well, I got a little checklist here. I got bullets. I'm a professor. <laughs> Bipartisan support in Congress to push policies that can provide climate stability. Um, this is a human health concern, so it jeopardizes our air, water, and food, spreads diseases, and imperils our homes and safety, particularly children and the elderly and the impoverished. Infrastructure investments in both clean energy and energy efficiency can have major global rewards. Um, they can reform and expand the existing 45Q tax credit and expand the use of private activity bonds. 
They can advance nuclear energy or maintain the existing. They can improve energy efficiency and produce stronger economic and environmental benefits. Congress could modernize excuse me, infrastructure, which could reduce emissions and improve what we are already dealing with. Um, they could also appropriate funding for technology and scientific research, build community resilience, and keep its obligations under the UNFCCC, that's the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change for international support. Um, they need to use real fact resources, not their personal opinions and with issues, and just make sure that they do what they need to do, again, just to take care of us, we the people. Thank you. Tim Shep. So the things that Congress can do uh, to help out with the climate crises and ensure American competitiveness in the 21st century. Number one, uh, we have to pass Build Back Better that has a lot of money in it that's going to go a lot of the way towards uh, the solutions that we need. Number two, appropriators in Congress have a lot of power from the current money that gets to get divvied out. And so I had the pleasure of, of meeting with Congressman uh, Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania recently, and he was talking about his role as the chair of the Appropriations Committee and, and the way that he gets to lobby in bills for, uh, for funding for the National Science Foundation and, and cool things like that. So I would make sure that, that we find out who uh, our representatives are, whether they're in our state or not, call them up. And, and tell them what we want appropriated so that they can uh, get the pressure needed to be able to, to act. Uh, I had another conversation recently with somebody who was telling me that one of the biggest obstacles to industry moving more quickly to green energy is that a lot of, of uh, for example, automobile manufacturing companies have gigantic strategic investments in, uh, in uh, not climate friendly uh, manufacturing plants. And so using things like the, the, the green energy bank that the Build Back Better plan has in it, um, I think that we need to offer a way to speed up manufacturing's shift in, into green uh, manufacturing process so that we can very quickly, we have the technology, and what we need to do is figure out how to move to it more quickly. Because if we don't, uh, and climate and, and temperatures rise by you know one and a half more degrees, uh, that's, that's the, the end game, really. And so we have to make sure that we do absolutely everything Call up your appropriators uh, and, and get them to appropriate funds uh, so that we can get more plans like the one that Kansas City just announced, uh, where they're putting a 300 megawatt solar installation on the Kansas City International Airport property. And it's going to provide all the city's power. And it's not even going to take uh, tax money from the local jurisdictions. They're going to get money that's been appropriated by Congress to help switch to solar. And, and that's what we've got to do. Spencer Tober. There is no amount of money that we can spend that won't be justifiable in addressing the climate crisis. There is no amount of work that we can do that would be justifiable in keeping our planet habitable for human life. And there's nothing that has been proposed that is significant enough to make the difference necessary in order to make our lives better in that way. That, to me, is a principal reason for running. 
when I look at my two-year-old and I think about the world that I'm leaving to him, and I think about polar bears, and I think about beaches, and I think about people fighting over water, and I think about mass migratory patterns of people who can't find farmable land. These are the problems of our future, and these are the problems that we need to address right now. There is nothing more important. That means we blow up the filibuster, we abolish it, we pass, we pass voting rights legislation, and we address problems like this that need real answers. And what's amazing is these answers exist. In the last 30 years, about 70% of carbon emissions came from 100 companies. In the entire world, 100 companies provided 70% of the carbon emissions. Here in Missouri, 73% of our energy comes from coal, from West Virginia and Wyoming, one of the dirtiest sources of energy that could possibly exist. When you look at that and you say, do I want Joe Manchin to keep funding, uh, getting funded by coal companies and dirty fossil fuel companies at the expense of my child's ability to have clean water or to be at war over irrigable land? It's absurd. There's nothing more important. We should take the troops who are coming back from overseas. We should have them planting trees. We should have them on diplomacy missions, helping other countries learn how to innovate and install solar panels. But we need to hold people accountable who are doing this, and that is large corporations, and it's based on the donations that they're making to our government that is working directly against the future of our planet. We need to take these actions now. We need to be as bold as anyone has ever been. And if you think about, when I was growing up, my parents would talk about the moonshot moment, and when there was an inspirational moment to say, we're gonna put a man on the moon. And I think about that now almost every day. What does it mean? What is our moonshot moment? What defines our generation to make people believe and to make people think that there's a future worth living for? And that's addressing climate, the climate crisis. And we need to do that immediately. And there's nothing that should stop us from making that our absolute priority. And that will be my priority in the US Senate. Lucas Coates. Thanks, you know, this is listed as a domestic policy question, but I actually, I see this also as a national security issue, and I think that if we approached it that way and spoke about it that way, uh, we'd have a good chance of getting more people on board, and I feel passionately enough about that, uh, personally, that I've written about it, uh, I wrote an article in the American Prospect on it, and, uh, and I've, I've actually experienced the way that this works, and so, you know, uh, I used to lead U.S. arms control negotiations on conventional arms out of the Pentagon. So I'd work with the administration, the interagency to come up with the U.S. policy. I'd go over to NATO to try to get our allies on board, and then I would go to Vienna, Austria, and negotiate with the Russians. And one of the things that I found at one point was we kept going over to NATO, and we were trying to get our Western European allies on board to take a hard position on some Russian actions. And they wouldn't do it, they wouldn't do it, they wouldn't do it. And finally, we figured out that the reason that they wouldn't do it is because they are addicted to Russian gas. And so what we have is a situation where because they're addicted to that gas, Western Europe is funding Russia's nuclear weapons program. They're funding their military modernization. They're funding their misadventures overseas. They're funding all the bad things that they do. And the United States of America is paying the price in defense to cover what they're doing with Russia. And so, so for me, this is an opportunity. Like what Congress needs to do is they need to invest in renewable energy right here at home, even if it costs a little more, because when we export that overseas, when we send that to Western Europe, we're no longer gonna have to deal with Russia and we're gonna save a lot of money on defense there. You know, when I work at the Pentagon, 
we have all of these internal documents that show just how bad climate change is going to be for national security. For every degree warmer that a place is, the, the likelihood of conflict increases by a huge amount. That's going to involve military, you know, more bad military misadventures. Uh, our bases are going to be submerged, which is going to cost trillions of, cost trillions of dollars for us to repair, uh, and several other things. And so for me, we need to build the coalition on this so that we can protect our country, our, our country's national security, build jobs back here again. I've been launching a plan for the U.S. that does that, that builds renewable energy jobs right here in Missouri, and that saves our planet at the same time. We need to build that coalition so that we can make this happen. Jewel Kelly. Regarding climate change, I agree with everything that was said previous to me talking. We need to pass the Build Back Better bill. We need to pass the infrastructure bill. And I would add, we also need to pass the Clean Energy Performance Plan. Now, we know that we have to start small to go fast. But essentially, this is not just a political issue. This is an education issue. This is a safety issue. This is a fairness issue. And so, as we found out, Obama passed for it. He signed the Paris Treaty along with hundreds of other nations. But Trump took us out of the Paris Accord, right? And so Biden put us back in it. Persistence matters. We have to educate our population so that, that it is no longer possible or feasible for our political, depending on who's in office, that we stop the progress that we know that we have to make. And so we have to do a better job as politicians and making sure that we educate people as to how important climate change is. It is an existential threat that's not only affecting our country, but the entire world. The world is looking to us for leadership. We must lead. We cannot wait for China or India. China didn't even show up. Russia didn't even show up at the last global summit. But it doesn't matter if we're leading. And so our job is not only to pass these bills, Build Back Better Infrastructure and the Clean Energy Performance Plan, but we have to educate one another as to how important it is. We have to make it so that it's not politically possible for us to go back. And if we do these things, then we'll have sustained change. specifically the filibuster. The United States, oh, Rome's already in the United States. The United States Senate requires a 60-vote majority to pass legislation as a check on the simple majority vote requirement in the U.S. House. However, in 2013, the Senate rules were changed overwhelmingly by Democrats to allow executive and judicial appointments to be passed by 51 votes, except for Supreme Court appointments. In 2017, Republicans expanded the 51-vote requirement to the Supreme Court. Democrats enjoy a unified government with majorities in both the House and Senate. However, it has proved difficult for legislation to pass out of the Senate with a 60-vote majority in today's political climate, compared to days when moderates from the minority party would make compromises with the majority party to pass legislation. 
Allowing for presidential appointments to be passed with a simple majority also creates challenges according to some analysts. In doing so, appointments to, say, the Supreme Court can be done with less moderation in mind. Current Senate procedure is not just a problem for the Democrats in 2021. Republicans also experienced their own setbacks when trying to pass health care legislation while in the majority. What is your philosophy on the Senate rules? For which purposes should a simple majority vote be allowed? For which purposes should a 60-vote majority be required? And how do we create a set of rules that encourages both parties to work together while also acknowledging that elections have consequences and giving the majority party, no matter what that is, the ability to legislate in accordance with the will of the electorate? First, to Jewel Kelly. Regarding the filibuster, the filibuster is a rule. And there are pros and cons as to whether we should keep it or whether we should get rid of it or maybe whether we should modify it. But one thing that we do know, whichever party that's in power, they're going to use the rules to their advantage. The issue isn't necessarily the rule. The issue is the politicians that are there. We can never let a rule trump Trump priorities, and we should never let a rule trump principle. So in terms of whether or not we should get rid of the filibuster, if the filibuster is standing in the way of democracy, and the only way we can make sure that we protect our voting rights, then we need to get rid of the filibuster, or at least modify it. On the other hand, if there is a way to get a bill passed, without having to get rid of the filibuster. We know how it was under President Trump. Thank God for the filibuster, right? So the, the issue really isn't the filibuster. The issue is who do we have in power and how many votes do we have to push our agenda forward? I am for getting rid of whatever we need to do, including the filibuster, to protect democracy. I am for protecting the voting rights. That is priority number one. If we don't count every vote, and if every vote isn't counted, we no longer have a democracy. And we cannot let a single rule of the Senate prevent us from doing so. So we have to understand what the issue is, right? And we have to understand that even if we were to get rid of the filibuster, there is a very good chance, if we ever lost power, that we would regret that decision. And so let's address the issue at stake. If the issue right now is democracy, what do we need to do to get enough votes to get this passed? And the last thing I'll say in, in terms of passing the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, the filibuster wasn't the issue. We only have 48 votes and we're trying to get to 50. And so that just highlights how difficult a problem that we have. The issue is not necessarily the rule, the issues of the people that we have in power. Thank you. Scott Sipton. So I have spent uh, more time filibustering bad Republican legislation in Jefferson City over the last decade than pretty much anybody. Um, and, and there are very big differences between how it plays out in Jefferson City and what's the abuses that have been happening in, in Washington. 
Uh, but I, I very proudly and at great length filibustered Republican efforts to lower the minimum wage, Republican efforts to shove through right to work, Republican attacks on, re repeated Republican attacks on a woman's right to choose and the rights of rape and incest victims. And I personally led the longest filibuster at the time, the longest filibuster in the history of the Missouri Senate, uh, an attack on LGBTQ marriage equality. My father uh, is a member, was a member of the LGBTQ community before he passed away, not long after that debate, actually. And the way it works in Jefferson City, uh, the filibuster is intended to be a tool to, to force compromise where you, you can. It, it protects the rights of the minority to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, some bills you're able to stop altogether, and we stopped several. Some bills you're able to at least win some changes to, and we had some of those. And some bills just get shoved down your throat, and that does happen as well. Uh, and we have ways to retaliate against that when it does. What's happening in Washington is fundamentally different in absolute abuse of the filibuster. It takes 60 votes to get to first base, uh, to even get rolling uh, in, 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 in the U.S. Senate. And, and what has happened is that Mitch McConnell has turned that into a stronger veto than the one Joe Biden has. Mitch McConnell is the Senate Minority Leader. That office is not recognized in the United States Constitution. The filibuster is not recognized in the United States Constitution. But uh, at least if, if Congress passes a law that Joe Biden doesn't like and he vetoes it, they get to have an override vote. We don't get to have an override vote when, when McConnell stops something. Uh, it's being abused, and it, it, it needs to be reformed or eliminated. Uh, and the president, I was very encouraged to see, uh, as of I think today, uh, is making it very clear that he wants to see something happen on voting rights one way or another, uh, and, is, and is open to changing the filibuster. And of course, the president uh, is one of the uh, longest uh, serving United States senators in, in, in recent memory uh, before he became President Obama's vice president. Uh, folks, majorities need to be able to govern. Elections do have consequences, and the gridlock in Washington has to end. Gina Ross. Things that have not worked in government trickle down the economy. And like as a professor every year, we have to go through Clery Act, Title IX, and all these different trainings. I think um, administration needs bias training, ethical training, uh, moral training and certification with passing score of at least 80 that they have to take every year just to get rid of some of these issues that are going on. Um, people need to learn how to be team players because again, it's not their own personal agendas. They're supposed to be representing us. Um, take out the corporate propaganda. If you keep trying to do the same thing over and over and get the same results, you need to do something different. Business as usual, it, it's no longer acceptable. We're, we're tired. We're just tired. And um, we just need to have agendas and legislate fairly and solely on the democracy for the people of the United States of America and just be true. But uh, again, I, I think they need some ethics and moral training because the standards are just way, way, way down. I don't want someone representing me that can't even respect the person that's next to them just because they don't agree with you. That's not right, and, and we shouldn't be like that. Maybe some people missed out on uh, manners when they were growing up. It's not too late to learn. We can try. Just so we can all work together, get along to get along. Thank you.
Tim Shep. The filibuster in its current state is utterly and completely broken. It has been abused, uh, and, and it is uh, fundamentally creating problems for our country to be able to pass meaningful and popular legislation that improve the lives of Americans. So we need to eliminate it as it currently stands. With that being said, as we have this conversation and this debate, we also need to talk about what the role of the Senate is in government in order to protect the institutional stability that it provides to prevent the United States from ending up in a race to the bottom where each of the two great parties are always uh, going back and forth with each other and changing major policy every four to eight years. Imagine the impact of what Trump did whenever he uh, reneged on our agreements uh, with, with NATO and, and whenever he abolished the Paris Climate Agreement, for example. Uh, we can't have a Senate that's changing power hands every four to eight years uh, and with it changing major policies. That will be extremely disruptive to, to global uh, stability and, and good governance and it will be extremely disruptive to business, innovation, and the ability of Americans to thrive. And so we have to ask the question, as we abolish the broken set of rules, which we absolutely must do, how do we also ensure that we can get back to a place uh, where we have bipartisanship in the Senate? And so I, I would propose that, that in the conversation to abolish the current rules, we actually need to codify the laws so that it can't be abused and manipulated by minority leaders. And we need to make sure that it's hard to use where 40 U.S. Senators need to be on the floor of the Senate in U.S. Capitol sustaining a filibuster. If something rallies that many people together into a coalition to object to a law passing, then that's something that's going to help ensure the institutional stability and ensure the minority in this country to make sure that we're able to move forward. Uh, regarding uh, the, the issue of minor versus major, major things to have a 60-vote threshold, uh, I would support a, a, a simple majority for things like judicial appointments and, and uh, make sure that that system is working and functioning. And for uh, the 60-vote majority threshold, uh, I think campaign finance reform is what we've got to do to get to a place where we can get bipartisan majorities. Spencer Toder, it's time to abolish the filibuster. Uh, the filibuster is itself a racist tool that was used to make it harder for black people to vote and other people of color. It is still used for that purpose and has been used in other ways to make all progress halt in our country. If you think about the cause and effect, the thing that people mostly are scared about should we get rid of the filibuster is how would we stop people who are extreme in the future from taking uh, action to put policy in place that makes our lives worse that we can't reverse. And I would say two things. One, we pass voting rights legislation. We make it harder for these people to be reelected when they pass policies that are terrible policies. If you understand gerrymandering, if you look at a map of the districts that are currently being won by, by extremists, they're shaped, shaped like horseshoes or like ducks, or they don't even touch sometimes. And so it's impossible to lose a district like that when you are the person who is drawn to win that district. By passing voting rights legislation after we abolish the filibuster, we will make it possible to have accountability again. Because there will be a risk of losing your job when you do things that are unpopular with your constituents. That isn't the case right now. And you see that in Missouri heavily. 
You, you see that we pass progressive reforms. We, we block right to work. We want increased minimum wage. We pass Medicaid expansion. And our super majorities hold us hostage. They stop us from having these things that we vote to have. It is absolutely essential that we remove any tool that stops us from having fair elections, it, to stop us from having people believe that their vote matters. In Missouri, we have, we have cities, we have areas where less than 50% of people vote, where close to 50% of people vote. You can't tell me that the other 50% of people don't want better quality health care, that they don't want better access to education, that they don't want better paying jobs and to, for unions to be supported and for women to have control of their bodies and people to know that they have freedom in this world, to, to have social mobility, to move when they feel like moving, to know that their lead pipes aren't going to kill their children and, and the racist tendencies of the climate change that are addressing minorities at such a rapid rate that these things can be addressed. But we can't address any of that if the filibuster is in place. We can't do anything with this relic of slavery blocking us from making progress. So it must be removed. We must be united on this. And we must work towards a future in which voting rights take precedent above all. And we have a representative democracy to make sure that all of our voices are heard. Lucas Kuntz. I mentioned the arms control negotiations um, that I used to do out in the Pentagon with Russia. And for me, this is you know, the, the filibuster and other procedural rules in Congress. They really remind me of those arms control negotiations because there's, there's two ways that an arms control negotiation can go. Um, either both parties can decide uh, that they have a similar goal where they both want to reduce the number of arms. They want to reduce the amount of money that they spend uh, you know, on military equipment, they want to invest in things at home instead, they want to make the world a safer place, they want to institute confidence and security building measures so that they know that one another's not going to attack each other. In a world like that, where people have a similar goal, then a filibuster makes sense. But in a, in a world like the one I experienced when I was negotiating with Russia, where the other side has decided that it is a zero-sum game, that it's all about power, and that if, the, if, if one person wins something and the other side loses, then you have to understand that exercising power is the only way that you can make any sort of change. And so that's what we're seeing in the US Senate, right? It is about the status quo. It's about maintaining a status quo that doesn't work for us. That's what the filibuster does. It doesn't work for anybody. And so what we need to do is we need to realize that all of the procedural rules that are in place to keep that status quo as it is, that broken system in place, are there because people view this as a zero-sum game and they view it as about power. And we need to exercise power back. And so in arms control negotiations, when you're at that point, you exercise power, you exercise coercion, and you do whatever you have to do to win because that's the only thing that's going to bring other people to the table to negotiate properly. And so in this case, yes, we need to toss the filibuster so that we can pass voting rights. We need to pass it so, toss it so we can pass everything popular that we want to do that helps out normal, everyday Americans because that is when it's, it's going to be what rebuilds congressional trust. It's going to be what rebuilds our country. And so for me, like, this isn't just about the filibuster. It's, it is about a state of politics that has become zero-sum, and the only way that we're going to be able to change that is by getting rid of rules that hold us in a zero-sum situation. Yeah, they still have two minutes for their closing. 
And they can clap as much as you want. So, uh, two minutes. We'll start with Gina Ross for closing. Okay, so when I moved to Missouri in 2008, my ex-husband told me if I left, I would never be nothing, never have anything, never have more than him. This is the show me state. How you like me now? <laughs> I'm a very mild-mannered person, but when it comes down to taking care of business, let me tell you, I'm a force to be reckoned with. I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm real brave. I'm real bold. I don't have to get out of order to put somebody in order, okay? I know how to do things decently and in order. And I just want you all just to be encouraged, be hopeful. I believe in unlimited possibilities. I did write a song about this campaign. If you haven't heard it, you gotta check it out. And you can go to my website, rossforussenate.com. And if you could just wave your hand, hey, make the way for change. Come on. questions. There were a few other things that I would have liked to have seen us uh, have the chance to talk more about. There was not 
this is no criticism, it was for, for uh, considerations of time, but, but there wasn't a voting rights question. Uh, a casualty of what's happening in Washington right now is, is the, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act and the, uh, the For the People Act have been, have been bottled up. Uh, there was not a question about police reform, uh, and, and right now in the Senate there's a stalemate on, on that. The, uh, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and the Eric Garner Excessive Use of Force Prevention Act have not advanced, and they, they need to come out of the House, but not, not the Senate. Um, uh, and there are other reforms that need to be adopted on that front as well. And we really didn't have a question about something else that I think is going to be at the center of the debate next year, and that's a woman's right to choose. Roe versus Wade is in more grave danger now than at any time since the day it was decided. Um, and uh, whether it's a matter of codifying Roe or doing whatever else we can do or need to do to protect a woman's right to choose, it needs to happen. Um, at this point, uh, exceptions for rape and incest uh, have been outlawed in, in Missouri and many other places, and we just cannot allow that to come to pass. Um, so, so I want to conclude like this. Uh, we too have been busy fundraising. We, we actually have more uh, unique Missouri donors, uh, not just uh, in, in any other Democrat, but any other Republican as well. Uh, we had nearly doubled uh, the, the candidate with the second most, which was Eric Schmidt. Uh, we had 1,441 on the cycle so far. He's at uh, less than 800 as of the last report. Vicki Hartzell was in third and, and a little bit more than uh, third uh, of what we've been able to do in terms of the number of Missourians that are standing behind our campaign. I know it has been tough. I've been here uh, in the last decade and seen a lot of good people lose tough races, but I'm telling you, we can, can get it turned around. The difference in the state three short years ago in the last midterm election between the statewide candidates was 706 ballots. Folks, we can do this, and I'm here tonight to ask for your help. Thank you. Tim Shepard. Thank you, uh, hosts, for having this evening, and thank you, everyone in Jefferson County. It is such a pleasure and an honor to be able to be here working to earn your vote and represent you in the U.S. Senate. America is at a crossroads, and we are on the verge of losing everything that we hold dear in our democracy. Republicans have proven that to them it's a zero-sum game, and they will resort to any means necessary to win power. It is incumbent on us as Democrats that we do not entertain that vision of how this country should run. It is incumbent on us to analyze why is it that billionaires are able to purchase elections and keep us in gridlock. We cannot use the tools that allow Kristen Cinema to be bought in order to win this election. If we're going to save our democracy, we have to ask the question of why it's actually broken, and it all boils down to super PACs. It all boils down to a back door that allows billionaires to coordinate with campaign committees. I need your help to get that message out and to inject it into the discourse, because it's really important that we lean into a vision of hope, love, and optimism, and demand that we as Americans demand a democracy, for we hold these truths to be self-evident, that each of us is created equal, and not some billionaire or CEO gets to have more influence over our political process than you and I. If this is a message that resonates with you, I desperately need your help raising money. I've had a hard time. And the reason why is because billionaires influence this process. Thank you.
I am running for the U.S. Senate because too many people are suffering. America is only as strong as our weakest link, and we can no longer stand by. We must put principle over party. Is it legal? Is it safe? And is it fair? Together, we must pass the infrastructure and build back better bills. Safety requires us to expand Medicare to cover hearing, dental, and vision care and fix prescription drug prices. Fairness requires us to stimulate the economy to create more jobs. It is fair to extend the child care tax credit. Equality says we can't afford not to invest in universal pre-K. Justice requires us to protect the environment and address climate change. Equality demands we ensure equal protection under the law which includes reproductive, LGBTQ, and voting rights. We will never give up because we can't give up fighting for the lives of our family, friends, and neighbors. Let's make mental health first aid classes available and accessible for all. Yes, we can win. Our campaign is growing because we are bringing more inclusion, more inspiration, and more imagination to Missouri. We are one nation under God, one race, the human race, one standard, justice, safety, equality. Have no fear. Our flag is still here. There is no fear in love. I ask for your vote. Let's roll. Spencer Toker. The focus of my campaign is on building trust. You can't buy trust. Donations don't do enough to give you advertising to build trust. Building trust comes from going out into communities. This really hit me hard last January. January 15th, my grandmother contracted COVID-19. We, we kept her isolated for months and months prior to that. She was scheduled to be vaccinated on January 19th, or sorry, on January 21st, and she passed away on my parents' anniversary on January 23rd. Now, I, I've been discussing running for office for months with my wife, but it was the day after that, after watching my grandmother die over a Zoom call, that I determined that I had to tell the rest of my family I was running for U.S. Senate. Because at that time, I never trusted the government less than in that moment. What we feel on a daily basis, the erosion of our society, the fabric of our, of our community dividing, it just being torn apart, all comes from the fact that we continue to fail each other. We continue to have our government fail us. We continue to not show up when people need, need us most. And so that's what we're doing. We're going out into communities, we're building relationships, and we're building trust. And that doesn't necessarily lead to fundraising dollars, because the people we're helping don't necessarily have fundraising dollars to donate. But we're building trust in these communities and we're finding people who realize that there's no path forward unless we come together as a society. And that means we focus on the things that unite us. And right now, those things are January 6th should never have occurred. We cannot live in a country where there was an insurrection and a party in power that believes that that is okay. We cannot have a faction of QAnon that for some reason the Republicans don't have to talk about being a negative part of their party when, when Congress people are spewing nonsense through, on, on the internet, and we cannot sit as people go unvaccinated and continue to die in our communities. We need to take care of each other. 
We, that, first and foremost, we need to create a future in which our children can grow in prosperity. I'm out of time, so please go to spencertoder.com. My last name is T-O-D-E-R. Learn about me. Learn about my campaign and the team we're building. Learn about the volunteer opportunities. It's going to take all of us, and, and there are plenty of different ways to contribute, but we will need all of us working together if we are going to defeat what currently divides us. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can participate in these shows live and subscribe so you don't miss any at alodgross.live. This is Alod Gross, and I'll see you on the next Alod Pod.